Welcome to the LSE and to our event on What is Housing For? My name is Susie Hall and I'm an Associate Professor in Sociology at the LSE. It's a great pleasure to welcome Anna Minton and Alex Vasudevan to the LSE, along with my colleague David Madden, with whom I co-direct the Cities Programme. Our event tonight focuses on the struggles to define housing in an era of crisis and increasing dehumanization. When Aditya Chakrabarti first started to contextualize the impacts of the global financial crisis on public service cuts and social housing dispossession, he acutely noted, we socialized the bankers' debts and in the process we privatized human despair. Our three authors tonight seek to engage with the political and the human aspects of housing struggles across many cities. Anna Minton is a reader in the School of Architecture at the University of East London and author of Big Capital, Who is London For? And her book focuses on the broken housing system associated with repressive speculation and state deregulation. Alex Vasudevan is an associate professor in human geography at the University of Oxford whose work focuses on the clashes with power and the space for alternative life and alternative politics in housing. And his book that he will be speaking to tonight is The Autonomous City, A History of Urban Squatting. David's book was written with Peter Marcuse and explores the commodification of home and the need for radical responses in both civic and state practices. Um, and his book is titled In Defense of Housing, The Politics of Crisis. For those Twitter users in the audience tonight, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE housing. I'd ask you now to please put your phones on silent and also to note to all of you that this evening's event is being recorded, as you can clearly see, and will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. There will be ample opportunity for you to put questions to each of our speakers after their sessions. They're, they're each going to speak in a row, and then we'll collect a number of questions. And after our event, there'll be a book signing that takes place um, outside with copies of our speakers' books, and we'll invite you to join us for drinks. For now, will you please join me in welcoming David Madden. Hi, uh, thank you, Susie, for that introduction, um, and thank you all for coming. I want to start the discussion by talking about what I think is at stake with this question that uh, we're addressing tonight. At first glance, the purpose of housing seems like it should be obvious, but the fact that the question, what is housing for, is even intelligible speaks to a particular condition that characterizes contemporary urban life. Housing, we might imagine, is for living. But in practice today, the purpose of housing is being transformed. It's these changing purposes that raise the question of what housing is for and what it could and should be for. I want to argue that in many big cities today, housing is increasingly not being created and distributed in order to provide people with homes. Instead, a different set of purposes is emerging. Housing today is being converted into a financial instrument for micro-entrepreneurs and hyper-capitalized investors alike. It is transmogrified into liquid credit for some and stable savings devices for others. It's a method for tax evasion, 
money laundering, and the consolidation of illegal assets. It functions as a way for globally mobile elites to purchase citizenship, rights, and security. It stands in as a pension for those who own it in certain locations. It enables conspicuous architectural consumption for those who fetishize iconic examples of it. In short, housing today serves as a resource for the privileged few who control particular types of it, even as it is a tool for the repression and removal of many others. As the housing system is increasingly oriented towards these functions, its ability to meet the social need for inhabitable space becomes strained. Now, I'm going to develop some of the arguments that Peter Marcus and I make in our book. And I'm largely talking about the cities that I've lived in and researched, which are New York and London. But this same basic plot can be found in cities across the world, even if the details are different. In many countries, housing is being reconfigured in the interests of a variety of ruling political and economic elites, including investors, financial institutions, real estate developers, landlords, wealthy homeowners, certain local and national politicians, and others. The result is that the housing system is losing any semblance of redistributive function and is increasingly becoming one of the many sites in contemporary society that reproduce and exacerbate inequality. The social manifestations of this situation are hiding in plain sight. Evictions, foreclosure, homelessness, displacement, segregation, overcrowding, and deadly residential disasters are becoming more common. Less obviously violent, but no less significant, are the everyday struggles faced by growing numbers of households for whom housing is a huge drain on resources, a major structural constraint on their access to other social goods, and a source of anxiety, interpersonal stress, and ill health. This is why we need to ask what housing is for, to critique the uses to which it's being put today, and to argue for a more just and democratic form and function for the housing system. My point is not that housing should only be about dwelling. That's impossible. Housing is never only about housing. It's always about politics, power, class, identity, gender, citizenship, and much else. The residential is always political, and removing the political dimension of housing is neither feasible nor desirable. But the politics of housing can militate for any number of different goals, and we need to ask what and whose political projects are being served by recent functional changes to the housing system. In order to better pose and answer these questions, we need an understanding of the formation and transformation of the contemporary housing system. To be sure, there's never been a time in the history of capitalist urbanization when what Friedrich Engels and others called the housing question was solved. But some understanding of the history of urban housing is necessary in order to register what's distinctive about contemporary residential development. The function of the housing system is historically variable. But for the poorest households, housing has almost never functioned to meet their residential needs. This is something Engels captured in his classic 1872 tract, The Housing Question. He writes, the so-called housing shortage, which plays such a great role in the press nowadays, does not consist in the fact that the working class generally lives in bad, overcrowded, and unhealthy dwellings. This shortage is not something peculiar to the present. On the contrary, all oppressed classes in all periods suffered more or less uniformly from it. What's meant today by housing shortage gets talked of so much only because it does not limit itself to the working class but has affected the petty bourgeoisie also. This is shockingly contemporary. It could have run in The Guardian this week. <laughs> we can take two things from Engels today. 
First, the idea that housing problems are endemic to market society. And second, the need to think critically about the very idea of crisis itself. So let's look briefly at how we've arrived at this point when Engels once again seems like breaking news. 19th and early 20th century industrial capitalist cities were deeply unequal, and this inequality was manifested as well as hidden by the residential built environment. Exploited and impoverished workers were relegated to decrepit housing conditions, but as Engels and others tell us, they were often out of sight from the prosperous middle classes. Housing for industrial workers was part of a circuit of exploitation, the site for the reproduction of labor, often in dire circumstances. But into the early and mid-20th century, the housing system changed as part of the contradictory and uneven emergence of urban progressivism and ultimately of the welfare state. Pushed by radical tenant activism in uneasy coalition with technocratic reformists, urban and national governments established a variety of programs aimed at responding in some way to the housing problem. Minimum dwelling standards, building codes, design regulations, health inspections, secure tenancies, ultimately rent control and public housing, numerous housing policies were created to address the most threatening manifestations of residential misery. Ultimately, state provision created islands of partially decommodified housing within many cities. To be sure, the history of housing in the Keynesian welfare state is not a history of the state benevolently working to solve the housing problem. The public residential built environment of the Fortis Keynesian city represented an unstable settlement, reflecting on the one hand the demands of households and housing activists, and on the other the need by the political and economic establishment to control the perceived threat to social, social stability stemming from marginalized urban groups. But Contradictory, uneven, and often exclusionary as they were, welfare state housing paradigms at least raised the prospect of housing as a component of social citizenship, even as they failed to achieve this goal in substance. It's against this background that we can understand contemporary changes to the housing system. The neoliberal era in the history of capitalism began roughly in the 1970s. I want to argue that neoliberalism has seen not only a change in the modes of distribution and provision of housing, but a shift in the very definition of what housing is for. If in an earlier era housing was falteringly and unevenly being dragged in the direction of social citizenship, in the neoliberal era, housing is not only being dragged away from that idea, but also being forcibly pushed towards becoming an instrument of financial accumulation. What once did in some limited way protect households from market forces now amplifies them. And we can understand this process using two terms. Uh, what housing scholars call the commodification of housing and the financialization of the housing system refer to a set of processes, adjustments, and changes that together are remaking housing on a cellular as well as systemic level. The essence of the commodification of housing is that the logic of economic valuation and exchange comes to predominate relative to all the other possible uses of residential space. Housing is potentially, as we've said, many things. In certain social conditions, it becomes a tradable, profitable thing known as real estate. Commodification occurs when, relative to any of its other possible uses, housing's role as real estate, and hence its control by market actors, becomes more significant for its production and distribution. When this process accelerates in terms of speed and scale, we can refer to hyper-commodification, which describes what's happening in many cities today. 
Financialization is a closely related concept. It refers to the increasing prominence and power within the housing system of actors that make a profit through the servicing and exchanging of money and financial instruments. And it invokes more generally the growing significance and stature of banks and investment firms within the housing system. This, too, can be seen occurring in many cities today. Wherever they occur, the state is a major driver of these processes. It spurs them on through privatization, public-private partnerships, D and re-regulation, changes to social service delivery, and austerity. The state is actively working to undermine the islands of partial decommodification developed in the past in a manner that many have likened to a contemporary version of the enclosure movement. But these developments are also being led by finance and real estate actors themselves. As well, it needs to remember that all of these changes are occurring in the context of growing inequality in general. This is creating a powerful class of people who control a massive and rising share of global resources and are in a position to consume huge amounts of housing in ways that are unconnected to any need for shelter. All of this is playing out in a wide variety of ways. The most well-known example is in the area of housing finance, in part because it played such an important role in melting down much of the entire global economy in 2006. From the 1970s onward, in many countries, regulations surrounding mortgage lending were undermined. Exotic new financial products were introduced. Predatory lending flourished, often specifically targeting low-income and minority populations. Beginning in the 1980s and accelerating in the following decades, new ways of slicing and packaging housing debt transformed solid structures into liquid assets that could be traded digitally, globally, and instantaneously. All of these financial innovations led to waves of foreclosure across the world, and this was particularly, particularly damaging for communities of color. The growth and transformation of housing debt was only one part of a broader set of changes. Overall, there's an ongoing recomposition of real estate capital with new corporate actors gaining prominence within the housing system. Real estate investment trusts, private equity firms, and other corporate actors now control growing amounts of housing. In many cities, what's become known as predatory equity uses a combination of debt and tenant harassment to squeeze profits out of the everyday corners of the housing system. For these sorts of firms, shareholder value means pushing up rents as high as possible. Affordable housing is treated as an underperforming asset which must be repositioned to recoup expensive investments. These new investment patterns and economic pressures are causing evictions, displacement, spiraling housing costs, and other harmful consequences. We're also seeing the emergence of entirely new residential forms. Housing designed and built to be an exclusionary, scarcely inhabited luxury good is now a familiar sight in certain strategic cities. Walk around New York, London, Vancouver, Toronto, Sydney, Shanghai, Hong Kong, any city where so-called superprime real estate can be found, and these landscapes of financialization are unavoidable. They're being bought by an elite transnational class who find housing to be their preferable store of value, Serial purchasers of luxury real estate, these hypermobile actors frequently disguise their identities through an array of shell companies and limited liability corporations. Significant amounts of this wealth have been tied to corruption and illegal activity, but housing provides a way to store this wealth in reliable legal and political contexts. Another clear illustration of the shifting function of housing can be found by looking at the strategies of particular sorts of corporate investors. 
For many of them, the housingscapes of the Fortis Keynesian city are, in this emergent context, the perfect profit-making opportunities. They target the inherited geographies of regulated housing, such as rent-stabilized multifamily buildings in outer boroughs or public housing developments with dozens or hundreds of apartments. Stripped of the institutional backing of a state committed, no matter how weakly, to ensuring some sort of residential security, these sites are being transformed from spaces of residential protection into potentially profitable rent gaps waiting to be claimed. Displacement is an unavoidable part of this process. Even at smaller scales, the logic of financialization is seeping into all corners of the housing system. We're encouraged to develop an entrepreneurial relationship to our housing, to see ourselves as strategic players of a complex residential game, to find clever ways to let out surplus rooms or spare sofas, to accommodate ourselves to and even embrace and enjoy a competitive, expensive, and exclusionary housing system. These are only some of the ways that housing is being redefined today. But for all these reasons, we can't only understand the housing problem in quantitative terms. There's a qualitative shift going on in the purpose and function of housing. Many of today's struggles are, in part, struggles precisely over what housing is for. As I've said, housing today is being pushed away from the logic of social citizenship and towards becoming something more like a commodity. But I want to end by explaining how these developments are obviously not only economic in their impact. One thing that's striking about all of this is that even in our age of growing political polarization, housing is one of the few issues which are identified as problems by nearly all sides. There's no agreement on what to do about it, but it's impossible to deny the existence of the housing question. In Britain, housing in general is a neurotic national obsession where the symptoms of crisis are examined again and again while the underlying causes are rarely identified. But recently, after fueling the problem for decades, both the Labour Party and the Conservatives are now talking about new council housing. We might want to be skeptical of their proposals, but we can interpret them as a clear sign that the current incarnation of the housing system isn't working to provide usable residential space. I'd argue that most people still profess a commitment of some sort to the ideal of good housing for all. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, numerous other international treaties, and many national constitutions all establish some version of a right to housing. And I'd argue that we all see ourselves as deserving inhabitants of housing. But these commitments and claims often conflict with the current political economic model. The result is ideological dissonance, if not a full-blown legitimation crisis. In short, housing is clearly one of the reasons why so many of us are so angry, and it's the clearest indicator that the current way of organizing economies and states only works for a very small, privileged few. Because of this, I'd argue that we're actually already seeing the dying stages of the privatized financialized model of housing. What we call housing's crisis needs to be understood as the crisis of this model. What's unclear is what will come next. To be sure, as much as it's obviously not working, there's potential for the status quo to persist. Most of the mainstream responses to the housing problem, as I've said, interpret it merely as a quantitative shortage rather than the result of an ongoing qualitative shift. Yet, if the system is simply maintained as it is, but with more housing units, there's nothing to prevent elites and financial actors from simply monopolizing more housing, leaving the problem unresolved. 
Another possibility, of course, is that the housing crisis could metastasize. One troubling prospect, which is already underway in many places, is the interaction between the housing crisis and neo-authoritarian movements and policies around the world, which use housing as a tool to antagonize and attack migrants, refugees, ethnic minorities, and others. Hyper-commodified housing relies upon undermining the rights of those who inhabit housing relative to those who own and invest in it. As a result, it carries clear potentials for oppression. There's no reason to think in housing or any other realm that neoliberalism and neo-authoritarianism cannot coexist with one another. At the same time, there are transformative potentials that are imminent to the current system and forces demanding the democratization and definancialization of housing. In many cities, housing movements represent some of the most exciting and important political forces. Housing movements have been forming coalitions with labor unions, migrant rights groups, anti-racist movements, some segments of political parties, and other organizations in broader alliances. Directly challenging the dominant atmosphere of cynicism, these movements are posing the housing question anew, speaking the language of power, interests, citizenship, universality, and social need, and once again trying to imagine real housing alternatives. So what is housing for? I've argued that powerful institutions have been answering this question for themselves, reorienting the housing system in new ways that have brought us to this current critical juncture. But there are other forces within contemporary cities asking what housing could and should be for. We should align ourselves with these efforts. In the face of today's residential crisis, one of the most radical questions we can ask is a very simple one. What would the housing system look like if it was actually designed to meet the universal need for a home? I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm hoping that my presentation will in some ways begin to sort of answer the question that that Dave just posed, Um, looking both historically but also looking to the future as well. So just by way of introduction, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank Dave for inviting me to speak this evening, and I hope my brief comments do justice to the urgency of our current conjuncture. We are, as Dave has already suggested, living through an intensifying housing crisis but equally a moment where the very idea of the city as a site of radical social transformation is facing an existential threat. Residential alienation, oppression, and injustice is a key part of this story. My own work for many years has been focused on exploring alternative forms of self-help housing and infrastructure. In other words, reclaiming, if you like, the right to the city, as so many have argued over the past few decades, without reclaiming housing seems pretty meaningless to me. Now, I should sort of introduce myself as a a geographer, but also as a historian and urbanist, and I am the author of a recently published book on the history of squatting in Europe and North America, the autonomous city. And what I hope to do in the few minutes I have this evening is really to use the book, if you like, as a platform uh, for my presentation, which is really to argue how we might reclaim, if you like, a sense of housing for something far more than the disagreeable or baleful realities of financialization and the logics of speculation that they depend on. So what do I mean by squatting? 
Broadly speaking, I'm talking about the living in or using otherwise a dwelling without the consent of the owner. And historically, squatters take buildings, or for that matter, land, with the intention of relatively long-term use. Of course, in the face of growing criminalization, squatters themselves are acutely aware that their choice to take control of their own housing needs has become an increasingly precarious and ephemeral act. So what I try to do in the book is really offer, if you like, a detailed description of the history of the squatting scene in Europe and North America, documenting the everyday experiences, practices, and sentiments of squatters and the role that they've come to play in the making of radical political horizons. So the book traces, in other words, the practices adopted by squatters, the tactics they deployed, the spaces they created. And to do so, I collected the various voices, ideas, practices, and knowledges produced by squatters while retracing past, if you like, a revolt that they themselves often followed. And so the book invites readers to step in and think with and alongside squatters whose actions were documented in magazines and posters, films, and other sources written and recorded in the wide heat of the moment. And of course, a number of writers have drawn attention in this context to the highly precarious forms of endurance and survival developed by the millions of squatters that continue to live in the cities and towns of the global south. These are important accounts that zoom in on the unjust structures of dispossession, exclusion, and violence experienced by many squatters, as well as their efforts to eke out a viable life in settings of pervasive marginality. Set against this backdrop, the squatter movements that first emerged in cities in the global north in the 1960s and 1970s were admittedly smaller in scale, though they still played a decisive role in the development of new forms of grassroots urban politics. And of course, in a city like London, they were central to sort of understanding this city and its various sedimented histories of protest. So it's really these kinds of stories, shared histories of political action, community organization, and collective living that is the main subject of the book. And the historical arc of the book retraces the emergence of squatting that coincided with the rise of new social movements across Europe and North America in the late 1960s. It follows this major cycle of militancy that characterized the 1970s and 80s. And this flowed in part from the actions of Italian autonomia to the countercultural agitprop that shaped the practices and tactics adopted in northern European cities, such as here in London, but equally Amsterdam, Berlin, Copenhagen, Hamburg, and many others. And these trajectories have, of course, been increasingly acknowledged by activists in particular, and particular attention has been paid to a new set of practices adopted by squatters um, in more recent decades as well. And it's that shared history, if you like, that that I track in the book as a response to long-term capitalist restructuring, the dismantling of the welfare state, and the deregulation and financialization of housing that David has just described. And so I think, in some sense, the book is a radical history of sorts. But we're also gathered here this evening to reflect on the housing question and how we might begin to work our way out of the pernicious straitjacket that is this current crisis. And in one sense, the challenge we face is nothing new. For the oppressed, the history of housing is a history of insecurity and inequality. But it's also a history of resistance and possibility, one in which squatters occupy an understudied, if important, place. And so one might even plausibly argue that we find in the practices of squatters and other housing activists the political other to creative destruction and the urbanization of capital. And it's what I, what I really want to do for the remainder of this presentation is really expand on this point. And I want to offer five ways in which urban squatting might prompt us to think about and inhabit the city differently. 
to, in other words, sketch out how we might reclaim housing for more radical purposes. And so I begin with the question of the archive, with the archival city. Now, in my own research, I found that squatters often understood the city as an archive of alternative possibilities. And perhaps we need to look more forensically to this kind of past to also move forward. And some of the squatted spaces that I charted and followed have endured and survived, but many simply vanished without a trace. For many squatters holding on to the fragments and remainders of these spaces, not to mention the actions which animated them, matters. My own research, therefore, would not have been possible without the tremendous generosity of the many archivists with whom I worked across Europe and North America. These are collections that mean a great deal to me, and their survival and use are vital for how we might still come to reclaim our cities. And in their longevity and endurance, we might also detect something of the radical infrastructure that figures, I hope, in the pages of the book. And I also would like to suggest that I, I don't think it would be a stretch to think of squatters as radical custodians of the city. In other words, I'm really talking about the alternative possibilities, the ways of drawing people, objects, knowledges together, the ways of reclaiming and repurposing the built environment. So that's the archival city. I want to also say a few things about a more makeshift urbanism. And this context, this takes me to my second point, which is really to understand, if you like, the actions of squatters as geographically or spatially generative or spatially productive. That squatters produced a different kind of city or a different understanding of what a city and its built environment could be and could do. An understanding that was makeshift, precarious, and experimental. And there is, it seems to me, a great deal we can still learn from this makeshift urbanism, as I would call it. For many squatters, the very act of occupation offered an opportunity to rehabilitate and reimagine the often heavily damaged spaces they were occupying. Squatting in their eyes was a makeshift process of mending and repair, as materials and infrastructures were incrementally added to satisfy new needs and possibilities. Houses were slowly and painstakingly restored using a combination of DIY practices. And of course, this process of repair and rehabilitation was a collective one. It depended on the sharing of materials, practices, and know-how between squatters. And throughout the 1970s and 80s, for example, squatters across Europe and North America produced their own handbooks and manuals. These were publications that combined a sharp critique of urban planning with a commitment to providing the tools and practices for generating alternative forms of collective self-management. And so the squatter's handbook you see here is now in its 14th edition and was first produced in London in 1976 by the Advisory Service for Squatters. And it offered detailed practical and legal advice for anyone seeking to take control of their own housing needs. A few years earlier in Amsterdam, we have this guide for squatters, which combined a series of rough and ready instructions into how to repair a house with information on planning and housing policy in Amsterdam. And of course, in New York, New Yorkers had the Survival Without Rent Guide that served as a step-by-step -step guide for would-be squatters in the Lower East Side in the mid-1980s. In West Berlin in the early 1980s, squatters famously adopted the slogan, it is better to squat and mend than to own and destroy. And they also used for the first time the term Instandbesetzung to describe their actions, the term itself a clever combination of the German for maintenance, or Instandsetzung, and squatting, or Besetzung. And they produced as well their own how-to instructions in one of the period's squatter magazines. And so as one commentator has recently suggested, these booklets, these guides, these manuals produced by squatters represented a blueprint for an alternative urbanism that they were themselves responsible for constructing. 
In other words, the built form served as a guiding frame for the creation of new sustainable structures of organizing, working, and living. Squatted buildings were re-engineered to suit the changing needs and wishes of their inhabitants and their changing understandings of home, if you like. So the very idea of what it was therefore meant to make a home assumed, I think, a new uh, significance as well. And so when I talk about the idea of a makeshift urbanism, what I'm really interested in here is how ordinary citizens took control of their own housing needs, that the kind of spaces they developed, often in the face of intense repression and criminalization, pointed to alternative forms of dwelling and an understanding of the city as a place of possibility, however fragile that may have been. And this takes me to my third point, which is around the question of infrastructure. Now, squatting represented far more than a crude exercise in architectural experimentation and reclamation. The improvised spaces assembled by squatters were undoubtedly creative and playful, and they left their mark on how we think about and inhabit the city. And yet this was a legacy that extended far beyond the walls of squats to encompass the wider networks and social spaces they generated. The broad spectrum of sites and activities developed by squatters spoke to an expansive social infrastructure that offered an alternative to the one routinely explored by contemporary urbanists. Whether it be London or New York, Berlin or Copenhagen, this was an infrastructure that assumed a number of forms, including alternative bookshops and cafes, cinemas, community gardens, concert venues, cycle repair shops, daycare centers, galleries, neighborhood social centers, and workshops. As a genre of urban squatting, squatting thus urban infrastructure, squatting thus spoke to a form of architectural activism that combined community design and participation with an understanding of the built environment as a source of continuing, continuous in, intervent, invention. Now, often squatters were responsible for spaces that often endured and thrived, and in some circumstances, these spaces were legalized or normalized. But we need to be careful here as well. The participatory open-source architecture cultivated by squatters should not be romanticized. The reuse of abandoned buildings, temporary spaces, and disused lots for the development of alternative practices and events has also played a decisive role in the neoliberal restructuring of major cities in the global north. The radical openness of squatted spaces has in recent years been captured by the creative industries and co-opted by municipal planning departments and city marketing campaigns. There is still nevertheless much to be gained, I would argue, um, from a return to some form of self-built housing despite these tendencies as a means to reclaim a more sustainable understanding of the city. And this is moreover a call for a radical rethinking of the role of architecture and housing. Squatters, especially in the 1960s and 70s, were often closely allied with architects and urban planners in developing autonomous, self-managed spaces. Many squatters were, in fact, themselves architects. And much of this ethos has, in recent years, been lost in favor of spectacular event-based forms that have done little to address basic housing needs. So this move to reconnect and embed architecture within the wider movements for the right to housing is something I would see as being really important in building a rather different kind of urban infrastructure and one that places housing at its core. And that takes me perhaps to my fourth point, which is around the question of refuge and solidarity. Often when we think of squats, we think of places of collective world-making, a place to express anger and solidarity, a place to explore new identities and different intimacies, to experience and share new feelings, and to defy authority and live autonomously. Squats were often sites of intense disobey, but equally of disagreement and dissent. But they were also sites of care, of connection and solidarity. There were places where people came together. And the history of squatting has always been characterized by its sheer diversity. 
attracting students, apprentices, runaways, workers, dropouts, anarchists, punks, gay and lesbian activists, queer and trans groups, black nationalists, migrants, refugees, and environmentalists. And if we begin to look through the lens of critical race and feminist theory, it could be argued that various struggles over squatting, and if we take London just as an example, were in some ways intersectional. Issues of race, class, gender, and sexuality were all present and raised by different groups, though these entanglements were often ignored and the approaches they were, that were adopted by activists across the city were in many cases non-inclusive. Nevertheless, to be a squatter meant many different things to many different people. So, for example, here in East London, a group of feminist activists that were linked to a nationwide grouping, Big Flame, were developing new models of working and living and organizing in the early 1970s. And the ELBF uh, was active in East London between 73 and 75 and was involved in a number of different struggles that extended far beyond the workplace and included squatting on their own behalf and to support homeless families in the occupation of empty houses and abandoned blocks of flats. There were also struggles linked to the various histories of gay radical culture in 1970s London and the questioning of queer sexual identities that emerged during this period. So the GLF, or the Gay Liberation Front, was after all set up in October 1970 in a meeting here at the LSE. While the first incarnation of the GLF dissolved in 1972, the spirit of the original organization was carried forward by local groups in London and elsewhere who were inspired by earlier GLF communities in Brixton, Notting Hill, Bethnal Green, and so on. And in Brixton, beginning in 1974, members of the South London GLF squatted a number of dilapidated back-to-back houses on Railton Road and Mayall Road, which were home to over 60 men and were later converted into a housing cooperative. And they also set up the South London Gay Community Centre at 78 Railton Road, which opened in March 74 and was evicted in April 76. This was part of a much wider geography of protest in Brixton at the time. But it must be stressed that these stories, uh, in many ways, have tended to be colorblind, overlooking the role assumed by communities of color within London's squatting community. It was, after all, on Railton Road in Brixton in 1972 that Olive Morris, seen here, and Liz Turnbull, members of the British Black Panthers movement, squatted an empty flat. And this was the first successful squat of a private property in Lambeth. Uh, Morris and Turnbull uh, resisted a number of evictions over the course of the next few months, though in the face of growing police pressure, they eventually moved down the road and squatted a council property. And of course, this is to say nothing of Black Roof, an organization that played an instrumental role in coordinating and defending black squatters living in Brixton and Clapham, or the Race Today Collective, which started in the same year and was based at 165-167 Railton Road, and CLR James um, later lived at the same address. Of course, the collective played an important role in the Bengali Housing Association group who were squatting flats across East London. And beyond London, some of my recent work has been looking at the role of migrants in housing struggles. A number of historical examples come to mind. The tactics adopted by migrants in Amsterdam in the 1970s has often been overlooked, as well as a number of struggles in West Germany in the same period. More recently in Spain and in cities such as Barcelona and Madrid, an ongoing commitment to the development of practices that seek to resist the forms of precarious living increasingly shared by migrants are increasingly shared by migrants and local residents alike. And again, this is to say nothing of the role uh, that squatting has played in providing an urgent and necessary alternative to dominant anti-immigrant policies that seek to deny asylum seekers and refugees the agency to shape the city on their own fragile terms. So I think we need, we need to ask ourselves in these, the, this context why these experiences have been largely marginalized within water, wider squatter histories. And I'm hoping to begin to sort of think about these histories as a way of kind of beginning to answer some of the questions that Dave already posed about how we might refunction 
or repurpose the housing question for more radical ends. And so I wanted to end with a fifth point, which is one about housing, housing activism and protest, and that part of the process of reclaiming the right to the city is invariably going to be a messy and political one. Um, and I, I simply wanted to stress the enduring purchase of particular forms of direct action and particular forms of protest. We often tend to write those out of some of the accounts or at least to kind of sort of move on beyond them. But squatting as a form of protest still carries on, as do other forms of housing activism, despite the increasingly dangerous and precarious context in which they operate. And so this is really a plea to sort of begin to think about different kinds of cities as a product of particular forms of collective action. The kind of city many of us perhaps envisage is not possible, and this is the point I want to conclude on, without people taking control of their own needs and desires. And this is the kind of autonomous city that I've written about, and it's perhaps the kind of autonomous city that I envisage. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you for uh, inviting me here, and thank you very much to David Madden for putting this event uh, together. I'm going to talk uh, about the question tonight, what is housing for, uh, picking up on the main themes in my book, which was published uh, just a few months ago in June, Big Capital, uh, who is London for? So inevitably I'm going to talk about London, uh, but in the context of the wider British economy, the wider British property economy, and the wider global uh, property economy. Just one point to make before I start. Um, my book was published on June the 1st, and two weeks later... The Grenfell, fire, ta uh, the Grenfell Tower fire happened, the most appalling uh, disaster imaginable uh, to put housing on the front pages. Um, and I think that that disaster spoke to a great many themes uh, in the book and to many themes which I'm going to talk about tonight, namely the uh, consistent failure to listen to local people and consistent failures in democratic uh, representation and participation, which are linked themes uh, to the housing crisis and to why uh, we've reached uh, this, this, this situation. Um, while the Grenfell fire was the most awful, awful disaster, I think it has opened a space of opportunity as well, and I'll, I'll try and pick that up. Uh, at the end uh, of my uh, comments. Um, one of the key themes in the book is that life at the top of the pyramid is actually linked uh, to life um, at the bottom. And I spend quite some time going around the alpha parts of London, which some of you might be familiar with, the sort of so-called golden postcodes, the prime property spots uh, that David uh, has mentioned. Uh, and this is in the context of London and other uh, cities being more unequal um, than ever before. One of the key themes I, 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 I emphasise uh, 
I take directly from Thomas Piketty's landmark book, Capital in the 21st Century, and of course the title of the book is a, is a self-conscious reference to that. And he repeatedly emphasises that in today's economy, the income from property, or the income from rent, if you prefer, is greater than the income from economic growth and wages. And this is one of the main factors fueling our contemporary casino-style speculative uh, property economy and this flood uh, of capital uh, and foreign investment which is coming into cities uh, like ours and which is linked to the displacement uh, of communities uh, and the destruction of public housing. So that's the overarching theme, life at the top, is linked to life at the bottom. I'm going to talk to you about both life at the top and life at the bottom. This is the sentence with which I start off the book. Uh, and actually, this is a friend of mine, Jan, uh, who uh, similar age to me. She's uh, got a good job. She earns £40,000. Her partner uh, has a job. They have two children. Uh, and this is what she has to put up with. Uh, this is what she posted on Facebook in Christmas of 2016, last year. And when I saw this post come up, she's one of my Facebook friends, I thought, I've got to put this in the book. And I just started the book with it. So, I mean, you know, this wasn't really research. This is part of my life. It's, I'm sure, part of a lot of your lives as well. So she wrote, surrounded by boxes yet again, about to move, knowing that we will be moving again in the new year. I have cleaned and painted the flat, and it's still a dump, with damp patches and a moth-eaten carpet throughout. I am 46, and I have lived in over 30 houses, and I still have no security. <coughs> okay, let's move to the other side of the coin. Um, you will be familiar with these sorts of images, sometimes quite hard to tell if these are CGI uh, images or if they are actually real uh, images. Um, the two seem uh, utterly interchangeable. I have a feeling this is a CGI, can't be sure. Um, this, however, is real. Uh, this is a little out of date now. This is at the time when I was finishing the book, so sort of around April 2017. And um, this is now Elephant Park, and this is one of the developer Lendlease's hoardings around Elephant Park and I want to focus a little bit on this development uh, in tonight's presentation. This again is a CGI. This is Elephant Park once more but this is what Elephant Park is going to be once what is going to be apparently the largest new public park in Britain since Victorian times is uh, created but of course this isn't a public park. It's going to be an entirely uh, private park, uh, which is uh, not uh, in the nature of parks as we generally uh, tend to know them. <laughs> and uh, this is the Battersea Power Station redevelopment. Um, Norman Foster, Frank Geary's architecture on all sides, which, as the architecture critic Rowan Moore said, a uh, great quote, I thought, they have managed the seemingly impossible, which is to make Battersea Power Station look small. 
So this is a flavour of some of the architecture which is going up all across London. Uh, 300 towers of residential development, cranes and development, absolutely everywhere. And for everybody who says the answer to the housing crisis is that we need to build more homes, well, clearly not. We're building lots of homes. Uh, We're just not really building homes that people can afford to live in. And it's also relevant to note that the entire first phase of homes in Elephant Park has been sold 100% to foreign investors. Uh, And this is one of my absolute favourite images. Uh, Again, CGI, not yet built. This is the sky pool, which will be uh, linking two 10-storey towers at the Vauxhall Nine Elms uh, development uh, just near the new American embassy. And these are the sort of iceberg basements which characterise the uh, alpha parts of London, costing three million or so apiece, and beneath the surface. I mean, this is obviously a particularly big one, but, you know, couldn't resist uh, putting this in. And, you know, archaeologists of contemporary London will, will study this and find these catacombs uh, <laughs> reflecting how, how we lived in 2017, how some of us lived in 2017. And these alpha parts of London actually are home to the most billionaires in the world. We've outstripped uh, New York now uh, uh, as being billionaire favourite spot, also favourite spot of ultra-high net worth individuals. Uh, and um, as David has already alluded to, a lot of this money is corrupt money. Uh, that was exposed by uh, the Panama Papers and, I mean, you know, very large amounts of uh, 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 investment in anonymous shell companies um, I think 40% of, of, of all this investment is in anonymous shell companies. And a lot of these properties aren't even uh, occupied. They're so-called safe deposit boxes in the sky, the phenomenon of lights out London, similar sort of phenomenon in Manhattan uh, and other North American uh, cities. So then you get this argument, well, you know, isn't it a good thing for the city to attract lots of wealth and investment? This is the idea of trickle-down. That wealth and investment will trickle down to the poorest parts of the city, which need it the most. It will uh, generate lots of employment opportunities in all sorts of service industries. Well, you know, I think it is clearly proven over the last 30 years that trickle-down has absolutely failed to work uh, in the UK and just very visibly all over this city it is clear that wealth does trickle down but it doesn't benefit the poorest communities it simply displaces them in fact it actually displaces everybody because if you look at what has happened in somewhere like uh, Kensington and Chelsea the old English elites cannot afford to live there either so they sell up They might move to the country. They'll buy their children homes in London, but they can't afford to buy their children homes in Kensington and Chelsea, so they'll buy them in previously unfashionable parts of the city like Acton or Peckham or Forest Gate, which are now starting to rapidly gentrify. In turn, property prices and rents go up in those areas, pushing those communities out. And so you have this process of displacement out of London to other cities, Bristol, Hastings, Margate. Those pressures then affect Uh, come into those areas and so you see this trickle-down process in fact affecting uh, the whole of the country. So you also get this uh, other line of argument which is that well you know this is gentrification. Um, You know 
I make a very, very big point in the book that this is not uh, gentrification. I think David referred to hyper-commodification. Um, the original definition of gentrification coined by Ruth Glass in the mid-60s, was of a much slower process, which might take place perhaps over uh, a generation. Um, what we're seeing now has nothing to do with that sort of definition where people would move into the inner city, do up uh, uh, a former uh, working, uh, working, working person's cottage and sort of then gentrify the area gradually. That was a contested process. But what we're seeing now has got nothing to do with that. This, with the speed of capital flows that have come into London and other cities since the financial crash, this is on a completely different level. And it's as a result of quantitative easing, all the money which has come in to uh, 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 save the, the banking system uh, post-financial crisis, which has disproportionately gone into the top end and into London property, combined with all of this uh, corrupt money, uh, policies of state-led gentrification, as they can be described, which I will talk about in a minute. And then from the bottom, you have other pressures, uh, the destruction of social housing, uh, austerity policies, uh, and the capping of housing benefit, which are making London an impossible place to live for anyone on low, middle, or even relatively high uh, incomes, as we saw with my example of Jan, uh, the woman I know who earns 40000 so to talk about these policies of uh, state-led gentrification, as this has been described by some academics. So remember Elephant Park, which we looked at right at the beginning of the presentation. Well, this was Elephant Park. This was the Haygate Estate in the middle of uh, Elephant and Castle, home to uh, 3,000 people on predominantly low incomes, although a good 25% or so of them actually owned their own homes. The right-to-buy owners uh, that uh, Mrs. Uh, Thatcher uh, uh, enfranchised with her famous flagship policy. Uh, and in 2014, Elephant Park was... Uh, sorry, very... Uh, difficult to be clear about these terms. The Haygate estate was demolished, and now you've seen Elephant Park is in the process, almost finished, uh, of, 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 uh, as, as, as nearly finished uh, its construction process. Um, and in fact, this is a process which is going on all across London. A uh, hundred estates or so have been demolished. Uh, advocates call this process estate regeneration. Uh, their critics call it social cleansing. This is Robin Hood Gardens, a very contentious estate because this is uh, acclaimed by many as a modernist masterpiece. The bulldozers have already moved in here. Um, this has been another very contentious site. Uh, this is Cressingham Gardens uh, in uh, Brixton, uh, just overlooking Brockwell Park. The rhetoric surrounding these estates is uh, often that these are sink estates which blight the lives of their residents and it would be better for all if they were demolished. Well, there is no way on earth that anyone could call this a sink estate. It's a lovely place which was designed to uh, meld with the park uh, and the community are now on their third judicial review. So it's a um, uh, an ongoing legal process uh, to, to try to fight what uh, the uh, Labour Lambeth Council are pursuing there. Um, 
so, you know, why is this happening? Why, at a time of acute housing crisis, are we demolishing what remains of our genuinely affordable housing? Well, as I said, it's this sort of sink estate story behind it that these are terrible places and actually we need lots of housing. So the only way we can build housing is to use all the land value that we will get from selling homes on these uh, estates and therefore we can subsidise the building of some affordable housing. Uh, as you can see, I don't really buy into this argument, particularly as the definition of affordable housing has been changed to now mean up to 80% of market rent or market value, which makes uh, anything that's built in these uh, developments completely unaffordable uh, to all of us. Uh, and as David mentioned earlier, it's the rent gap. It comes back to this idea of the rent gap, which is the difference between uh, the value of land and the potential value of the land. And when that difference becomes too large, uh, then basically capital uh, piles in, and this uh, tends to be uh, the result. And this was explained very well, I think, in this quote by Lord Adonis, who is the chair of the National Infrastructure Commission. And he spoke of how the scale of council-owned land is vast and greatly underappreciated. There are particularly large concentrations of council-owned land in inner London, and this is some of the highest-priced land in the world. The local authority planning regime has got to adapt properly to the potential for market-priced developments. So, you know, this land value has got to be realised, uh, policymakers feel. This is the only way that we uh, can build housing, and hence we're seeing this huge uh, churn. And actually, Adonis has also said he would be keen to see all of London's 3,500 estates undergo this process. Wow. I mean, you know, that is a huge change uh, in demographic. And, you know, these are the results. This is Elephant Park, Again, CGI, I think, but it is nearly built. Uh, and the prices uh, on Zoopla are uh, 750000 to a million uh, for a two-bed flat. 25% affordable housing, but hey, 80% of a, of a million? Not really that affordable. And what happened to the tenants? Uh, well, this is where the tenants on the Haygate uh, have moved to, generally out of the immediate area, communities disrupted, networks broken, kids have to leave their schools with all the attendant uh, difficulties, social uh, and mental health difficulties that poses. And ironically, it's the owners, the homeowners on these estates, the people who bought their homes under the right to buy, who've suffered the most because they get such low values in compulsory purchase uh, uh, from local authorities that actually they cannot afford to stay in London on the whole. Uh, the average price for compulsory purchase on the Haygate was £100,000. Just compare that to the prices you're seeing now. And so these people have to leave London. And I've got some really heartbreaking stories of people I met and interviewed who, who now live uh, outside of London and, you know, have not recovered from it. Um, at the same time as these processes have been going on, to add another enormous uh, part of the jigsaw, which I don't have time to go into in too much detail, but what we've seen over the last 30 years, I would say sort of amounts to the slow death 
of social housing uh, and a shift, a very fundamental shift in policy which came in with the right to buy, which saw more than 2 million council homes being sold off. And instead of building council homes, we decided to subsidise uh, demand through housing benefit. And I call this from bricks uh, to benefit uh, in, as a way of trying to make it sort of comprehensible to people because you know I feel when we talk about supply side and demand side policies actually a lot of people get lost so we stopped building and we started looking at uh, housing benefit uh, and ultimately you know we've now reached this stage where since 2010 I don't believe that the government has really believed in social housing. I've, I've shared platforms and I have spoken to, to people in, in, in government who have said, you know, they, they don't believe in, in social housing. Uh, we've also seen the rise of the private rented sector uh, and buy-to-let. Um, and now we've got a situation where 40% of council housing is owned by private landlords uh, who rent out those properties at three to four times the price. And a third of social housing is actually now in the private rented sector, which leads to a housing benefit bill uh, of $9.3 uh, And actually, that housing benefit bill doesn't even cover the rents because now they've been capped. Tenants keep getting evicted because they can't afford to pay uh, the rents. David also already mentioned a slide of, about, about rent to rent. Every aspect of your home is now uh, marketised and the conditions in the private renters sector where there is famously no uh, regulation. The head of Generation Rent said there are more regulations to run a cattery than a home um, you know uh, has led to some really terrible uh, uh, conditions uh, like this and these are the uh, illegal beds and sheds. There are thousands and thousands of these in, in back gardens in sort of outer London uh, suburbs. And I briefly described earlier to you this new London that has emerged alongside uh, this. Um, so this is my final slide. Back to the question that we're, we're thinking about today. What is housing for? Well, you know, David's already talked about housing being a human right and a public good. And I think a lot of us do still subscribe to that rather than a financialized uh, commodity. I try to look at this in the final chapter of the book through the lens of the concept of the right to the city, Henri Lefebvre's uh, famous uh, idea, which is also enshrined in UN Habitat 3, and that's the idea of the city as a contested space uh, rather than a financialized, market-led monoculture. Some things that we can do um, we, can, we, we really need to address this uh, uh, casino economy and the monopoly of the big house builders. Uh, land value tax is something that a lot of other countries uh, uh, look at very successfully. Um, in Zurich, uh, publicly owned land, uh, apparently now publicly owned land, has to be used for cooperative housing. This is the sort of policy that would bear dividends. I think Alex actually mentioned this to me. When I, when I saw him last. You know, it's a sort of thing that we do not consi consider. But as I said at the beginning, it's 
very much about democratic representation and real participatory democracy. And in place of not listening to communities, completely ignoring communities, having this nexus of councils and lobbyists and developers making all the decisions, we have got to re-involve people in what happens to their local communities. And we have to reimagine housing, uh, not as a problematic tenure for those on uh, lowest incomes, uh, but actually as a mixed community where all of us might live as it was originally envisaged. So thank you. Thank you very much to all three of you. I have loads of questions, but I'm also well aware that this is a room full of residents. We've probably got a number of activists here tonight and maybe even one or two covert policymakers. We'd like to hear from all of you. Um, could we take two questions at a time? Um, please wait for the roving mic, and when you ask your question, please tell us your name and tell us where you're from. First questions, gentlemen, fourth row up. And second, second person, another question. Right, on, on, the, on the edge there. Let's start with those two. Yep. Hello. My name's Gordon Peters from Stop Haringey Development Vehicle in Haringey. Thank you very much to all three speakers for a lovely triad of presentations, nearly all of which... Uh, uh, I happen to agree with somebody who in the early 1970s supported the squatting movements in London, Alex referred to. And I now find myself in two days' time round the corner from here in the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand in a judicial review of what will be the biggest sell-off in local authority history in Haringey of all its public land and property if it goes ahead. Uh, so I do hope some people here take note of what will be happening in the Royal Courts of Justice on Wednesday and Thursday this week because I think it's going to be a litmus test legally for the future of what development corporations are trying to do with their encroachment on local authorities and we are actually testing that in court so Thank do you. look so, out for so what just happens. to add if anyone wants to join that protest Thursday and Friday Royal Courts of Justice students it's on your doorstep Wednesday please, and please. Thursday Wednesday and Thursday what did Wednesday you say? and Thursday this week Round the corner, right? the Royal Courts of Justice, there will be a lobby between 9 Fantastic. and 10 each morning as well, and Thank people you. can sit in too. Uh, my question is, given that I've gone from a worker activist in the 70s to somebody now seeing even worse happening than I did then, to what extent do you think the context of re-engaging protest, having public ballots in local authorities, and people's plans put together will actually turn the tide. Is this a moment, as some of us would hope it might be, in my legal case I think it's part of that, when the tide really will begin to turn, especially after Corbyn's speech at the Labour Party conference last week, for instance? Are we now beginning to see an end to this neoliberal repression of the right to a home? Thank you. Thank you. So we've got a tide-turning moment and question from you. Hello, I'm Irfan and I'm a student... Um, thank you very much for all of your uh, thoughts on this subject. I mean, as I listened, I, I had two uh, principal thoughts. The first of which is, how much of the problem do you feel is a result of the skewering of our economy 
towards London and other cities. Um, I mean, I, the problem is particularly acute in the cities um, and uh, elsewhere. Um, but the fact that I was reading just yesterday that 13% of Britons are now residents of London um, and with current planning laws that prohibit building outside certain boundaries, laws such as the Green Belt, uh, many, many years old now, how much of the issue do you think is due to that? And secondly, um, the last speaker spoke about the gentrification of certain areas in Zone 3 and, and the like. I mean, I'm originally and was born and brought up in Stratford, as I still do live there now. And part of me feels this is because of the desirability of older accommodation, uh, the utopian modernism of Le Corbusier and other architects who have imposed their vision on these areas which, has, as they have aged, have aged very, very badly and perhaps not to the communities there but do portray uh, a, an impression of decline to the rest of the people whereas the Victorian properties uh, and even before that, th- these larger, um, more conservatively constructed properties have... Um, become very popular. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So David, could we take um, the tide-turning moment and Anna, respond yeah, to that? Um, I mean, I, I, I hope we're seeing a turning of the tide. Um, I, I, I do think it was significant that Jeremy Corbyn gave this speech at the, at the convention and talked about labor-led gentrification, um, which, it, which is a major problem. Um, <clears throat> I don't I don't know really how much stock to put in this. Immediately there was pushback from councils, especially Haringey. Um, and it's hard to say if this is really going to be carried through. And we could have a situation where there's a lot of, sort of rhetorical, rhetorical uh, lip service being paid to the idea of stopping this, but on the ground it's not really grinding to a halt. I mean, it's a similar issue. I mean, you mentioned balloting, and could this be, if there, if there was a demand to have balloting and all estate regeneration uh, schemes, could this, could this end them? And I mean, I think it's, it's quite easy for balloting and consultation to be a sort of empty performance that legitimizes um, demolition rather than a, 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 a truly substantive democratic way to stop it and to have input in the planning process. So, um, I mean, that said, the system that we have, the urban system, and specifically housing and its connection to it, it's quite unstable, and um, it, we could see the tide turning. turning. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's hard to say, uh, is my response to that. Alex, do you just want to jump in there? Yeah, just very quickly. Uh, I mean, I think I probably would want to inject a cautionary note. I mean, the Labour Party has a sort of fraught history with housing policy in London for a very long time. And my sense is the closer they get to power, the greater the compromises they will make. Um, and we should push them on those compromises um, collectively. Uh, and so, and you begin to already hear this in, in some of the conversations they have. It was obviously great that they made some moves on what's taking place in London, but I would at least want to register a slightly cautionary note. They've disappointed us many times in the past as well. Um, yeah, I mean, completely echo the cautionary note. But the debate is out there now, and it wasn't out there before. It's being had. And I think 
public opinion is shifting, the mood is shifting. The Aylesbury case was won last year to everybody's massive surprise. As you say, you're, you're, what happens is going to be a litmus test in Haringey and everybody's watching. To answer the point about gentrification, so I think what you say and the sort of gentrification you're describing about sort of older properties being desirable, etc., this is the established narrative of gentrification and, you know, there's a lot that is true about it and it's always been a contested uh, uh, topic uh, and this sort of gentrification where people come in and do up Victorian homes and, you know, make them desirable and coffee shops open and all the rest of it brings nice things to areas and at the same time prices go up and people get kicked out and that's the contested process I think that's a narrative which actually obscures what I've been really talking about because what I've been really talking about has been the large-scale development of all of these um, so-called luxury apartment blocks mushrooming all over places like Stratford and places like the Carpenter's Estate uh, being put up for demolition through a joint venture with Newham Council, uh, which I think didn't go ahead. I'm not quite sure of, of the kind of current status of that. But those are the actually much larger processes combined with some of the uh, austerity uh, uh, processes, the uh, loss of social housing uh, and the displacement of people through that. And I think this sort of subplot of kind of coffee shops and hipsters and, you know, they are sort of the markers for change. I think that's obscuring, actually, the bigger picture. Right, let's take some more questions. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, hello, my name is Taina. This is this is kind of a, a comment on the previous um, um, comments. <laughs> I've just moved from Glasgow, and um, what we saw after the Second World War there is widespread demolition of Victorian housing to be replaced by um, moder- modernist estates. And at the time, that housing was criticized for much the same things as present-day modernist estates are being criticized for. Um, you know, they uh, were in poor conditions, they didn't satisfy um, the aspirations of modern-day living, um, and there was much regret for all of the demolitions that did happen. Uh, and once there was refurbishment and the appropriate level of maintenance put in place, that housing um, became loved again. And so I wonder if instead of doing the same thing with these modernist estates of saying, well, they're not working, let's demolish them, actually just putting the right amount of maintenance, um, refurbishing them in a way that isn't, um, you know, removing the communities that live there, surely is, is the better way of, of moving forward. Thank you. And then the woman in the middle. My name is Caridwan Roberts. Thank you very much for interesting presentations. If Even there, it was really rather horrific to hear some of the things you were saying. My question is trying to get behind why Labour councils are doing this. Now, obviously, one could very simply say they're all Blairists or they're all neoliberals or whatever. But actually, I do think it's important to look at to what extent the uh, the emerging position that all government funding 
for local authorities apparently will cease in 2020 is actually an important factor in why they're having to screw their estates in the way they are. Is that a mistaken assumption on my part, or do you have any, or do you think that is also part of the explanation? So, Alex, could you maybe respond um, to the first question of repair versus uh, displacement? Yeah, David, it, if you want to come in. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the one of the the ironies of when you write about squatting is that that earlier generation of squatting that I talk about partly in the book in the late '60s and early '70s was responding in part to to the moment that you're describing that that housing activists were were seeking to reclaim and repair housing stock, which in their eyes was valuable. Um, in the face of, of modernist redevelopment and regeneration. And, and I think in some ways th- that ethos uh, is, is something we can reclaim in different ways now as well. And, and so, so one, of, one, of the, one of the things that I find really interesting is a sort of growing move amongst the architectural profession in some quarters and amongst some planners to sort of almost repurpose that ethos of the 60s and 70s, which was around repair and rehabilitation, I mean, it's early days still, I think, in some ways, but I think we're beginning to see um, the emergence of that kind of practice. Um, and so we're moving away from stadium building and hopefully building or repairing or refunctioning housing again, I think, is something to sort of reflect on. And I think, once again, I mean, that, that is a precarious process. Architects, in many cases, would argue they need to live as well. Um, and and they're, they're, they make a lot more money building the kind of student housing we see in every city um, across the UK than they would doing this kind of thing. But I think it is emerging in very exciting and interesting ways across Europe, North America, but equally in the global south as well. And so if there's one other point one could kind of link to that is the kind of way in which these ideas, these practices are circulating in a wider geography that we are learning the city or relearning the city from people elsewhere as well. And I think that can be very productive. So. Yeah, I, I think that you make a really good point here. And um, I, I think we really need to be careful with this. I mean, it's sort of become second nature in urbanist and architectural circles to, to just sort of assume the validity of the failure of modernism mm-hmm. argument and, and the, the idea that, that public housing uh, represents some kind of failure. But this line has always been a, a political line from the beginning, developed by people who are attacking public housing and attacking the very idea of housing the public and um, and you know, also tied to forms of stigmatization um, that residents of public housing developments feel um, it, as, as a very concrete form of harm. So I, I, I don't think that the narrative of the failure of modernism is, is useful at all for understanding the housing question today, and I, I really do think that it, it's, it's more ideological mystification than, than anything else. And then, Anna, I mean, you, you raised an incredibly important question about the role of the state, where housing authority should lie, where housing resources and funding should lie. So if you yeah, I mean, why are Labour councils doing this? And, I mean, without a doubt, the funding backdrop is an incredibly important part of the picture. And I think another incredibly important part of the picture is this theme from Piketty that the income from property is greater than the income from pretty much anything else. And councils have property and they want to become commercial developers 
which is in fact what they're doing. They're all setting up these housing companies uh, and they say they're building housing companies or doing joint ventures like Haringey are doing um, in order to make money, which they then say they will plough into providing services. So that's the context. But, I mean, given the amount of, well, the lack of genuinely affordable housing that is provided by these schemes, I, don't, I, I, I personally don't think that's a viable argument. Thank you. I think we have time for two more questions. Uh, two people side by side there. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Purvis, School of Economic Science. I wonder if David could answer the question that uh, he posed in his last slide. Hello, um, my name is Ray Yates. I'm ex-LSE chair and housing MSC. I've been an ex-squatter and worked for ASS and a co-op member and now a homeowner, so I've been through the whole gambit. Um, the wider issue, I think, is the structural, the superstructural issue that's going on in the planet, the, ri- uh, the rise of the East and the decline of the West. None of you talked about the issue that the Western world now no longer produces industrial products that we can sell. And so all we've got to... F- put on the world stage now is our assets, our land, our buildings, etc. So that is a major factor, I think, behind it. First of all, Anne, would you please mention something about the social economy and the effects of rents on the social economy? Um, Alex, did you see that squatting was outlawed by the Tories for foreign investors? Because their fear was squatting laws in London and their properties. And, and David, can you please speak about the rise of the city-state and the demise of the nation-state and the economic activity within the city? Uh, this, this could lead to David, Alex and Anna's course 101 on housing, so I think that's about 27 questions in three. Um, choose from them as you will. Um, well, I, I suppose I, I am compelled to respond to the first question. Um, I mean, th- th- this was more of a provocation and get, uh, a, a prompt to get us to think about concrete housing justice rather than a sort of quasi-Rawlsian exercise in deontology in the housing system. Uh, in plain English, please, David. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I, I mean, let, we need to start asking these questions, first of all. What would the housing system actually look like if it was designed to meet the universal need for a home? It, uh, first of all, would be universal and would recognize that need does not correspond to effective demand. Um, it, would, uh, it, it would be a space for autonomy and fulfillment for inhabitants irrespective of their economic position. So, I mean, there are, there are people for whom the housing system provides some some kind of semblance of what what sort of housing ideology would say it should be. I mean, for the very wealthy, they do experience their housing as a resource. They do experience it as a uh, as a, a space of of freedom, as opposed to a space of constraint. I mean, there are there are other sort of mutations to that location in the housing system as well. But um, we we could think about ways to develop housing as a space for humanization, for fulfillment, for security. Um, Irregardless of economic position, um, and I mean, we can imagine that the housing system would be would be focused on 
providing for social space, for convivial life, for community connections um, in a way that's completely disconnected from economic exchange. There's no reason why housing should be a way for anyone to become rich or uh, the cause for anyone to be completely dispossessed. Um, and it clashes with, with I, I think, a sort of everyday ethics of, of housing and what people deserve um, in, in a very clear way. So um, I don't know. As I said, I was, uh, I, I was posing this question at the end rather than the beginning for a reason, but I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I could come up with. Right. I, th- I think I got off lightly in terms of the question. Um, or maybe I didn't. I don't know. Um, so the question was about why criminalization of squatting, which um, came into force, um, well, the, the law was passed on September 1st, 2012, came into force the beginning of January 2013. This is criminalization um, in residential property. Um, I mean, one of the things I've, I've argued elsewhere that this was very much anticipatory. This was looking... This was future-proofing the city in a particular way. Uh, uh, and, and, and we have to see also that the context of this was not simply a housing crisis, of course, which it was, but, but also a, 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 you know, growing protest movements emerging in London, which occupied spaces in all sorts of ways. And so I, I think those things are, are really important to understanding the move towards criminalization here in the UK, which has been a long-term process. As you well know, there have been previous attempts in the 70s and so on. Uh, and, and, and while law has been used by housing activists and squatters rather resourcefully, they're also pushing up against it in new ways today. But it's not just the UK. It's the Netherlands. Um, we've seen uh, new laws passed in Spain. Um, Michigan and Nevada have passed new anti-squatting laws in the United States. And these all are of a piece with a wider housing crisis. So I think we do need to see the role that the law has played in foreclosing alternatives such that and this is an example I use, for example, in the book. It's, um, and it's a very poignant one um, of Daniel Gauntlet, a, a homeless person uh, living outside London, I believe south of London in Kent, who froze to death because he didn't want to squat a property because of the risks he thought that would mean in terms of criminalization. So the other point of all of this is that the new law has been killing people or at least harming them in all sorts of ways. And so, I mean, if there was one thing I would ask the Labour Party, should they win an election, heaven forbid, um, is to um, actually repeal Section 144 in its entirety. Um, that would be one step towards at least recognizing maybe some of what, what David's talking about, that if we're going to have a conversation about housing as a universal good, we should stop thinking about it as something that divides people. So, yeah, that would be one thing to sort of link that. Um, so the point about the impact of rents, and by social economy, I, I'm thinking you mean... Small and medium-sized businesses, independent. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, essentially, what it's meaning is that the city becomes more and more sterile and hollowed out, and full of similar types of chain areas. You know, the sort of McDonaldization of the city. Some people have. It. I mean, this process has been going on a long time. You know, you've got large private areas where, you know, you can do all sorts of things, but how different is Granary Square from, I don't know, Canary Wharf even? I mean, yeah, there's sort of differences in nuance, but, you know, they're not the sort of terribly sort of vibrant, lively creative city centre atmospheres that, you know, a lot of people 
still very much want to see. And, yeah, I mean, essentially, people can't, you know, small and medium-sized businesses can't afford these rents, uh, and they, 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 they get pushed out. Um, and London has less and less uh, of, of, of this. We've, we've reached our time. Um, I'd like to thank our three speakers immensely for fantastic insights. I'd like to thank you.